morning, Calvary Church, Eric Wakeling, pastor here, and just grateful to have you participating in this worship service with us. Uh, we're actually recording this uh, on Thursday, and so I want you to know that. Uh, I'm out of town uh, this weekend, and so I've invited a friend and a fellow pastor of a local church, Taft Avenue Community Church here in Orange. His name is Craig Hill. I mentioned last week how this is a tough passage that we're going to be talking about today. So I was running away, running out of town and brought in a guy who has uh, been a professor at Biola Talbot Fuller Seminary and teaching biblical Greek, uh, New Testament, Bible interpretation, and even did his dissertation on the book of Hebrews and so it just seems so great to be able to have him to come and share it with us today. I've had the pleasure of sitting under his teaching and he's able to really bring some of these difficult topics to life and into just to be easy for us to understand. And so I'm excited for you to be able to learn from and hear from Craig Hill. Come on up as they erupt in applause in their own homes. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> you all this morning, today. It is um, a particular joy because as a young believer, I, I came to Calvary Church uh, after high school football games to the door. And actually, um, that time of my life was very foundational. And just to see just the faithful service of Calvary Church, and many of you probably even served in that ministry back in the day. And just to say a, a quick word of thanks, it really was something that was formative to my faith. So teaching at Biola and at Fuller has given me an opportunity to work with uh, many of the pastors here on professional development and some academic resources. And over the years, Eric has become a good friend. And so when he said and asked me, hey, I'm, I, I, need to, I need someone to fill the pulpit, I of course said, yes, that's a wonderful thing. I love this church. Um, we're just down the street in Orange. Um, and then I said, well, what passage do you want me to teach on? And when he told me, I said, well, I guess um, I, I realized that I was going to be preaching on one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament while Eric was dipping his toes in the ocean. So, so we got that going for us this morning. So it was great to have him here. But um, actually, Eric and I have talked quite a bit about Hebrews. And I did do my doctoral dissertation in the book of Hebrews. Um, but I do, the, the words of my wife echo in my ears every time I talk about the book of Hebrews. And that is, Talking about the dissertation is a real conversation killer. So, so we got that going for us this morning as well. So I will try to, um, to, again, not go too deep into the weeds and not geek out too much. But again, who doesn't love a little geeking out? So anyhow, all that to say, if you have your Bibles, whatever you're looking at God's word on this morning, whether it's a Bible or an app, if you would open to Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And we're going to look at... This passage is kind of divided into two parts. We'll look at the challenging part first and then the encouraging part. But the challenging part is probably one of the most challenging passages in the New, in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at Hebrews 6 beginning in verse 4. And it says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. 
All right, so how is everybody feeling now? I mean, you're at home, you're on your couch, you're in your bedroom, wherever you're watching this at, there is a significant tension that comes when we read a verse like that. And Hebrews is famous, or I should say infamous, for what are called its warning passages. And the author, if, if you've been following along so far with how your teaching pastors have worked through this, you've probably noted that the book of Hebrews is about a man giving a sermon, essentially, a word of exhortation, and he's working through an argument and interspersed through this argument. And this argument is that Jesus is better than insert whatever it is. It could be angels, Moses, Uh, sacrifices, priests, tabernacle. Jesus is better than all that. But as he's making that argument, he intersperses in that these sections of exhortation, these sections where he, he ceases talking about this is what it's like to, hey, you all ought to be careful. You all ought to take a look, take a good look at your life and, and let us move on. You might, these, these let us passages and the book of Hebrews intersperses these throughout. So he'll turn to the audience and he'll speak very clearly and very forcefully. And this is one of those passages. There are five of those passages, those types of passages, warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And at times we, we come to, to grips with the idea that this sermon can be fairly heavy handed at times. So let's talk about the difficulty of this passage. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably come across this debate of well-meaning Christians where there is this ongoing debate within Christianity of can someone who has come to faith and expressed authentic faith in Jesus, can they turn away from him and in essence lose their salvation, for lack of a better phrase? Now, some would say no. That God, if God chose, God is sovereign, God brought you in, then God will persevere you. God will endure you through this. And those people that we refer to as Calvinists or we refer to them as Reformed, some people say, yes, you can lose your salvation. If you decided to follow Jesus, then you can decide not to follow Jesus. People have freedom of will and for good or bad, they make free decisions And we call these folks Arminians or Wesleyans. Now this morning, we are going to solve this long-standing debate. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. This is a long-standing debate. It's an enduring debate. It's something, there's a tension about this debate that we really need to embrace. What I do want you to think about, though, this morning is, in some sense, it's the theological question, it can be put on hold because there's a practical reality for all of us. And that is, you and I probably both know of people who have expressed an authentic faith in Jesus. They've expressed a profession of faith in Jesus. But for one reason or another today, they no longer hold to that profession of faith. Theologically, you can debate what's going on behind the scenes, but we live in this practical reality of people who at one moment profess a belief in Jesus and then turn around and no longer profess that faith. And when we look at the book of Hebrews, uh, when we look, sorry, this is new. I'm working it out. So as we look at the book of Hebrews, there's a problem with finality. And in, in some ways, this idea that it is impossible to renew someone to repentance once they fall away. And I think we all are asking this question, is this, is this passage about the guy who once was a pastor but fell away and is now an atheist? 
Or is this passage about my neighbor who grew up in a Christian family, but over the years his faith has grown cold? Or even more to the point, is this about my son or my daughter who grew up in the church and was active in the youth group and had a vibrant faith and once they went away after the trellis of church and family fell off that they seemed to darken to matters of faith. And I want to make the case this morning that this author has a very specific audience in mind, a specific sort of group in mind when he uses this kind of rhetoric. So, all right, are you guys ready? Some of you out there are like, all right, big guy, you know, tell me something I don't already know about this passage. Some of you guys have been believers for a long time and have studied this, this very topic. And so let me just give you a little bit of a sense about how I go about reading this passage. And it really has a lot to do with the story of the Exodus generation and the story of the 12 spies. Again, if you've been following along in the book of Hebrews, what you've probably made note of is that in order to understand this passage, and oftentimes in Hebrews, in order to understand a specific passage, we have to step back and we have to look at the entirety of the argument. And as we look at the book of Hebrews and throughout the book of Hebrews, the preacher is going to give us many examples, good examples, be like them. Think about Hebrews chapter 11, be like these people, Adam, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, be like these people. Ultimately, Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. But Hebrews will also give us some bad examples. Really, Hebrews will give us two examples that are essentially the very worst examples of faith that you should never try to follow in their example of faith. There's really two. One is the Exodus generation and the other is Esau. We're not going to talk about Esau this morning. Um, that's coming in chapter 12. But the Exodus generation, particularly them at the story of the 12 spies, is what the author of Hebrews wants to bring front and center. You think about this group, this Exodus generation, that as far as bad examples go, the Exodus generation is the worst. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He did sign after sign. He saved their children from the plague, from the angel of death in the Passover. He parted the Red Sea. He provided manna for them, miraculous bread in the wilderness, water from the rock. But there is a defining moment for this generation, a moment in which their way is ultimately set, the die is cast, and their fate is sealed. God has been patient with them over and over, patient and patient and patient and patient. But there's one episode where the die is cast. The table is set and there is no going back. And that's the story of the 12 spies. If you're not familiar with the story, I just want to um, help you to understand this, that the author of Hebrews really brings this generation and this moment front and center when in chapter 3, he quotes from Psalm 95, something that you guys probably looked at a couple weeks ago. He quotes Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 is the story of how, of this moment in time, this 12 spies moment, where God ends up saying, you will never enter into my rest. It's the story of Numbers 13 and 14. And if you're like me, maybe your, your Bible, your, the pages in Numbers don't see the light of day that often. Hopefully they do. But if, if you're familiar with the story, I want to retell it a little bit just to give a sense about how it plays into this passage. 
So if you think about Numbers 13 and 14, this is the part where the, the nation of Israel has come through all these miraculous signs and they've come to the southern border of the promised land and they, they choose 12 leaders from each of the tribes. They send them into the land. And these, each of these 12, 12 leaders is tasked with doing military reconnaissance, demographic study, agricultural spying. They're asked to bring back fruit from the land. And they come back to their leaders, and in late chapter 13, they give, they give a pretty accurate report. They bring back, you know, they bring back pomegranates and figs and this huge cluster of grapes that's carried on a pole between two people. And they come back with this report, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's mouth-watering, right? And so, but they say it's filled with fortified city and large, large inhabitants. The people are strong and the cities are fortified. Now, 12 of the spies go out and 10 of them start to have this, these second, these second uh, questions. But two of the spies, and particularly one, one raises his voice. It's Caleb. Caleb's the one spy who raises his voice in this moment. He sees how it's going, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. We should by all means go up. We will inherit. We will overcome. He, he spits out the promises of God. He simply says, this is, he, he's so steeped in the promises of God that when he sees it going badly, he just says, we should go up. We should inherit. We will. God is on our side. But Caleb gets shouted down. And by the time the rest of the 10 spies give their report to the nation of Israel, the book of Numbers describes it as an evil report. And if you read and you look at the nuances of it, the, the spies start telling ghost stories about the Nephilim, these half-human, half-demonic hybrids that devour children. And they live in the land and they're going to eat your family. I mean, really, that's what they're doing. They, they give a report that is meant to crush faith. All the while, Joshua and Caleb are saying, no, we should go in. But the evil report finds its target, and it does indeed crush the faith of the people. The people who hear the evil report, they believe it. They weep and complain all night. They say, why is God doing to this? Us, why is God doing this to us? Why did he bring us all this way just to have our children eaten by the land? They say, let's appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. By this time, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and Joshua, the only other spy that sides with Caleb, they speak up and joins his voice and they, they tear their clothes and they plead with the people. This land is good. God is on our side. And one of the most haunting verses in scripture is Numbers 14.10, which says, then the people picked up stones to stone them. They were going to silence the only voices of faith left in their generation. The ending of that verse says, and then the glory of the Lord showed up. And God comes down. His plan, and he, and he says, okay. And when God shows up, you can imagine he's a little angry. Um, how long will these people not believe in me? And eventually he says this. He says, okay, everybody, I've done all this for you, but you haven't believed, and so take a lap. Take a lap around Mount Sinai. You guys, you're, gonna, you're not going in this land. You're going to take a lap like the big PE coach in the sky. Take a lap around Mount Sinai. You're going to do that for 40 years. And he says, look, this is what's going to happen. Everyone that is over the age of 18 is not going to ever go into the land. 
Everyone under the age of 18 will go in the land, but the rest of you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. It's a moment of finality. It's over for you. Now, why do I tell this story? And how does it relate to Hebrews? Okay, it relates to Hebrews in this, in that it's not the end of the story. Do you remember what happens in Numbers 14? That's, that story would be great, but they don't just hang their head low and go wander off into the wilderness. What they do is they say, the next morning they wake up and they come to Moses and they say, Moses, we are so sorry. We're so sorry. We want to go in. It's our inheritance. We want it now. And Moses says, hey, everybody, God has spoken. You go in at your own peril. And they try, they muster their troops and they start heading in. And it says in Numbers 14 that they get beaten down by the Canaanites and the Amalekites. They get sent running, they get slaughtered, and they come back licking their wounds. And Moses says, no, God said, take a lap around Mount Sinai. But this is why this is important. This is the profile. They were heirs apparent. They had an inheritance that was given to them. It was promised to them. And what they said is, we don't want that inheritance. Only later they have second thoughts about that and want to go in, but they are unable to. And when our passage says it is impossible to renew them to repentance, and even earlier in 6.3 when it says, this we will do if God permits, this is the author of Hebrews hearkening back to the Exodus generation, the worst example of faith that he can find. How does this look in our passage? It says this, those who have once been enlightened. Hebrews describes the Exodus generation in, verse, in chapter 4. They had good news preached to them. They had been enlightened. I think it's interesting too, you look at this and tasted is used twice. Tasted is used twice. That's totally an allusion to the Exodus generation at the 12 Spies episode. Pomegranates, figs, grapes, flowing with milk and honey. That's the imagery of tasting. It says that they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You could translate that as partnership. You have been made partners with God. And it is very clear throughout the Exodus account, throughout Numbers, throughout Deuteronomy, that God is walking with them. God will fight for them. God will lead them into the land. God carries them like a father carries his child. And the problem that they are facing is this problem of falling away. The problem of falling away. In real time, it's the slow burn of inattention and neglect to faith. Generation after generation seeing the works of God and not pressing forward. That they will have their bodies fall in the wilderness. You think of all these cautions. We do not drift away. That we should not come short. That we should not shrink back. That in Hebrews, the call is for endurance. But indeed, this idea that it is impossible to renew them to repentance. All right. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this? And we might feel like today that this sort of rhetoric is a little heavy-handed. That this sort of rhetoric, um, especially when the next verse is, I don't think this is going to happen to you. Like, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. And the author of Hebrews, and just so that we understand a little bit about the author of Hebrews and what he's doing with this kind of rhetoric, 
In the ancient world, this sort of rhetoric was commonplace. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, if you had a son or a daughter that was disobedient, one of the things, you, you, you might threaten them, you might try to reform them in some way or another, but the ultimate way of reforming them in the ancient world was threatening to take away their inheritance. In the Roman world, of writing them out of the will, to writing them out of the testament. That was the ultimate threat, the threat of disinheritance, cutting them out of the will. And the Roman world was notorious for this sort of threat. Now, it's interesting, though, that in the Roman world, even though this sort of threat is common, it is rarely, if ever, exercised. That as we dig up Roman wills and as we have all this evidence uh, of, of testamentary evidence, that there are hardly any examples of a father actually disinheriting a son or a daughter. And I think this is what we have here in the book of Hebrews. It's something similar to this sort of rhetorical parallel. The threat of disinheritance, even though there's an understanding that the disobedient child is going to pull out of their tailspin. The author of Hebrews wants to show them and remind them, hey, there are other people who have stood on the edge of the promises of God and decided not to go in. And it did not go well for them. But we are convinced of better things concerning you. We have this passage, the very next verse, Hebrews 6, 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, even though we are speaking in this way. This word better, this is a great word. In the book of Hebrews, this word better, kraton, is the word better shows up everywhere. And every time the word better shows up, it has to do with what Jesus is doing. Better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. And so we ask the question, what is, this, what is the antidote for this sort of slide, this sort of inattention, this sort of neglect? And ultimately, it boils down to two words. And I want to look at two words as we, as we finish up this morning um, and ask this question about what is this full conviction of hope that we see in the book of Hebrews. Two words as we finish up. And, and really, as we look at this Hebrews 6.11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right, two words. There's two words that I, I really want to um, unpack here for us. And the author of Hebrews says, look, there are people who stood on the edge of promise, the promises of God and walked away. You all are standing on the edge of the promises of God right now and I want you to press forward. I want you to press into that rest, the promises of God. How do you go about doing that? And the author of Hebrews says, what I want you to do is I want you to show diligence and I want you to realize full assurance. The words in Greek, diligence, is the word spude and the word in, uh, for full assurance is the word pleurophoria. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit about each of these things. Now, diligence is the idea of paying careful attention to something. The idea of, of, of uh, a sense of urgency that in Hebrews there had been a sense of neglect and that neglect had come from inattention. And when someone has a sense of urgency, they don't neglect something. I, look, COVID-19, I don't know how it has hit you guys, but one thing that has hit me is uh, sports. I watched a lot of sports. I am hoping that 
beyond all hope that there will be live sports soon. One of the things that I particularly enjoy doing and what I miss are youth sports. So my son is a junior at Woodbridge High School. He plays basketball. And one of the things I love about watching my son play basketball, and we have this joke that he plays basketball like his hair is on fire. And we love, we love going to, I don't know if you ever do, have ever done this, you've gone to youth sports and like everybody's kind of milling about, but there's always like one kid who's like just running around everywhere because it's like their hair is on fire. They have this total sense of urgency. It's like when they step on the court, they think this could be my last time on the court. And so they play with abandon, with urgency. They understand the moment. They understand when they step onto the field that there is to be spude, diligence, urgency. And the author of Hebrews says, we desire that each one of you show the same sense of urgency, that you would have faith like your hair is on fire. I know that's not the best analogy, but the idea that you would move out with the kind of energy and urgency that the things that accompany salvation demand. How do you press forward? How do you not fall away? How do you not neglect you develop a sense of urgency, diligence. But it's not just that. It's not just our will that gets us across the finish line. It's not our will that gets us to faith. Certainly the urgency of the moment is something that comes from our faith. But it also says that when you understand these things, there will be full assurance of hope. In 611, this is a wonderful word. This word, full assurance of hope until the end. The word full assurance is this Greek word, pleiroforia. Now, um, the word is composed of two parts, pleirao, which is full or filled, and then pharaoh, which is to bear, and this idea of bearing it fully. You've heard of the word, perhaps, the word euphoria. Euphoria is the idea of having good feelings. You is good. Phoria is this idea of bearing it well, bearing it good, okay? This word is pleirophoria, pleira and pharaoh. It's the idea of bearing it fully. And there are many translations of this word. If you look at different translations, you might note that this is translated differently. You might see full assurance like we have here in the NASB. You might see deep conviction. You might also see full conviction. What I want to offer as a translation or a meaning this morning to pleirophoria is this idea that there is a full weight of feelings that accompanies our salvation. That there is a full, there is a deep emotional resonance or perhaps we could call it full conviction. Let me tell you one story. I don't know, I would imagine if you've come to faith in Jesus that you have had moments in your life where you've experienced full assurance or full conviction. Now, I wish I could say that every moment of my life of faith has been a moment of full assurance and conviction. I can just say this. There are times in my life where I can be intimidated by this world and I realize that I need to cultivate full assurance, full conviction. Now, maybe something you can do is think back on a time when you had a sense of full assurance or full conviction. Again, maybe it's a moment. Maybe it's a moment in time. Maybe it's a season of your life of faith. I remember one time that stands out to me. I first heard the gospel at a Christian rock concert. Um, I was 14 years old. Um, 
it changed my life. It changed my life. I was in, I, it was the first time I had ever heard that Jesus loved me, that Jesus, that God had a plan for my life, that I could have a personal relationship with him. As a 14-year-old kid, I caught fire. Now, I had grown up in a Roman Catholic family, a Roman Catholic church. I was in the process of confirmation at the time that I heard the gospel at this, at this Baptist church in Irvine. And I remember going to my confirmation class and then going to youth group. And I remember going to youth group and hearing this, hearing this wonderful message and being part of this community and this vibrancy of faith. And I remember, I remember going to this and we, we would like play games and then we would sing songs and then we, and, but I was like, I was loving it. I, I was drinking it up because God had gotten a hold of my life. And I thought, you know what I need to do? I need to go back to this, to this group that, and I need to tell them the story. Now, I'm not anti-Roman Catholic. I have friends that are Roman Catholic. I believe that they're good, faithful people in the Roman Catholic Church, believers, okay? I'm not down on Roman Catholicism. But I went back to this group of ninth graders and my confirmation class. And I tried to explain to them what had happened to me, what I was experiencing. I tried to explain to them this youth group experience. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever tried to explain youth group to someone that does not understand what youth group is, it can sound a little goofy coming out. I don't know if you've tried to do this. So I, I was like telling them, yeah, we showed up and we played this game. And then we, this guy got out this guitar and we started singing songs about Jesus. And then this guy got up and he started talking about how God loves us and how we can have a relationship with him. And I remember in that moment, I was 14 years old and I looked out at this group of people in, my, in this class and it was just like blank stares at me. Like, who in the world are you? What in the world are you talking about? Now, I wish I could say that there were times in my life that I've never been intimidated or that I, I've not always had confidence in my faith. Um, but I would say this. In that moment, I was not intimidated. I was like, basically, this was my thought. I could give a rip what any of you think because they, after the blank stares, it came like the kind of derision came out and people made it pretty clear that I was an idiot. And I mean, this was a 14 year old kid in a group and I was basically told like, I, I, I was a goofball. I was an idiot. I was throwing away my life. I mean, this is what I was told. Okay. I was not intimidated. And you know why? Because I had experienced play Rafferia. I had experienced the full weight of the feelings of the gospel. I was like the man in the parable of the treasure who had dug up a treasure and I was going to be damned if I was not going to go back and dig up whatever was mine, whatever belonged to me. I had come to faith in Jesus and no one was going to knock me off of that. I was experiencing play Rafaria. I was experiencing the full assurance of hope. Now again, there are times where that, that might ebb and flow in the Christian life. And I would just encourage you, for the author of Hebrews, how do we press on? How do we have the urgency? How do we endure? The author of Hebrews says this, show diligence. Have a sense of urgency. So as to realize the playrofferia, the full conviction of hope. At our church, we've talked about this idea that anything worth doing is worth doing with passion and conviction.
And the author of Hebrews makes this very clear. If you want to stay away from falling away, then develop a sense of urgency, a passion, and a full assurance of hope, a conviction of what God is doing. And when you feel down, the rest of your community comes around. You don't always, you're not always going to be the Caleb. Caleb, it's really interesting in the story of the 12 tribes. I mean, Caleb had full assurance, had full conviction. But when the 12 gather together and the 10 start giving the evil report, there's only one guy that speaks up. It's not Joshua. It's Caleb. Caleb has full assurance. And it's Caleb's example that I think that really pulls along Joshua and then makes the space for these four people, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, to press forward. In the story of the 12 tribes, or the 12 spies, I should say, when God says everyone under the age of 18 will make it in the land, but everyone over the age of 18, your bodies will fall in the wilderness with the exception of two people, Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they had the sense of urgency and they experienced the full conviction of the hope that was set before them. As we finish today, just as a challenge, something for us to, to think about. <sighs> Sometimes we can get flat in our faith. And it's okay. There's part of the seasons of faith that go that way. But this week, I just want to encourage you to ask God for a renewed sense of urgency and conviction about what the author of Hebrews cares about so much, which is the supremacy of Jesus. Let me pray for us in that end. Father, we are grateful even for the hard words of your word. And this certainly is a passage where we have questions and we might not answer them all today. But the one thing we want to do, Father, is we want to press on into your promises. You have an inheritance for us. We want to lay hold of it. And Father, we ask that you in our hearts, through your Holy Spirit, would rise up a sense of urgency and a sense of conviction that there is no other name under heaven and earth by which men are saved except Jesus. And so our knees bow to Jesus this morning. May our hearts be full of a love and an urgency about proclaiming the name of Jesus. Father, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.